You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome to America's Voice for Energy. I'm Marita Noon, and each week I have the opportunity to interview experts on the topic of my column that week. My column can be found on places like Breitbart.com, RedState.com, and Spectator.org, just to name a few. Of course, it's also available on my website, which is EnergyMakesAmericaGreat.org. This week, my column addresses cafe standards and how they benefit the car company Tesla, which gets a huge uh, benefit from our government regulations. I titled my column, Tesla's Success, a great example of how government regulations manipulate markets. I got the idea for this week's column back when I wrote my column uh, a couple weeks ago on uh, the VW, on the Volkswagen diesel scandal. And as I was writing on that, I was preparing to be on a car-themed radio show on a Saturday morning, and I was looking up some data on the CAFE standards. When did the CAFE standards start? What exactly were they? And as I was looking that up, I came across an article that talked about how the CAFE standards benefited Tesla. And I just kind of tucked that out of the way in the back of my mind. But this past week, Consumer Reports removed its recommended status from the Tesla Model S. And so that moved this story to the front of my brain, and it's how it became this week's column. So for my first guest today, we're going to be talking about the CAFE standards, what they are, what they mean, where they came from, and so forth. And I'm delighted to have Sam Kasman with me. And I'm particularly excited to have Sam as my guest because Sam was one of the very first, first, first experts I reached out to. In fact, I remember, Sam, that when I called you, I was actually scared to call you. I was brand new in this job. I'd been, at, I'd been doing this. I've now been doing this for about 10 years. But I was brand new in this role, and I read an article that Sam had written that Sam, I believe, was published in the Wall Street Journal uh, about CAFE standards. And so I reached out to Sam, and, and uh, we've remained in contact, remained friends since, and I think of you as my CAFE standard expert because of that conversation 10 years ago. So, Sam, with all that, welcome to America's <laughs> Voice for Energy. Thanks. It's uh, nice to be on your show. Well, you know, as, as I've said, I've, I have all these years appreciated your insights and think of you as my go-to guy for CAFE standards. So for our listeners who are not familiar with the CAFE standards, which, by the way, have nothing to do with coffee, uh, can you explain what they are and kind of some of their background, how they came into being? Uh, sure, and I'll get a bit into uh, the involvement of my own organization uh, in CAFE, especially in litigating it against it uh, quite a while back. But CAFE basically stands for Corporate Average Fuel Economy, and uh, it was a st it's a program established by uh, Congress back in the mid-70s in response to what was then the first of the uh, Mideast oil shocks. And, of course, the notion was that uh, we, we, we being Congress, need to do something to uh, uh, encourage uh, energy conservation, and cars was uh, uh, the way they went after that. And uh, it began with a, a, a standard of about uh, 
uh, well, it was sort of a, a standard that would increase over the years. When it was first enacted, um, the first standard to take effect was 18 miles per gallon, and we're talking for passenger cars here. And then it gradually uh, uh, grew in succeeding years, and at a certain point it reached uh, this number of 27.5 miles per gallon. And the agency that would be running this program, which was the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, a part of the U.S. Department of Transportation, uh, basically it would have uh, the power under this law to uh, set standards uh, up to 27.5 miles per gallon, and then later events basically uh, removed that limit, and so it went much higher. For those who think uh, the sky is the limit, I don't think they're all that off. But there were some <laughs> big debates... There were some big debates back then over, one, whether you really needed CAFE, and secondly, what the standard should be. And uh, uh, the fact that Congress uh, passed this law in the first place uh, meant that uh, those experts and those consumer advocates who thought that consumers and car makers were in the best position uh, to determine fuel economy uh, obviously lost that debate. But I think their arguments uh, were compelling that back then and in a sense are even more compelling now, namely that the uh, fuel economy is just one of many attributes uh, that consumers want in cars, and to get one attribute, you often have to give up other attributes, one of those being uh, aff affordability, uh, th th that is higher or lower fuel economy, uh, higher or lower prices for cars, uh, what size car, what weight car you, you wanted, and so forth. And, um, you know, s since the issue was how much money are consumers paying to drive these cars once they purchase them, to us it always seemed that, you know, consumers were the best decision makers here. Yes. And I think uh, subsequent events have borne that out. But what interestingly happened was that if you look at that first first few years of CAFE standards, yeah, Congress set these standards to gradually increase. But in fact, uh, consumers at that time and the auto industry were so worried that fuel prices would not, were not just high but would continue to increase that they actually uh, produced cars that exceeded uh, the standard set by Congress. So for its first five or six years, yeah, you had uh, politically determined fuel economy standards, but the market was doing them even better. The big problem started back in the mid to late 1980s, and this goes back uh, quite a time, but you're going to see this is history repeating itself, when fuel prices first stabilized and then actually started to drop. And it was at that point that you had consumers wanting to get back some of the things they'd given up in the name of higher fuel economy. It's a good way to put it more space and so forth. Um, some of them wanted station wagons, for example, uh, and the car makers were more than happy to uh, supply them with cars meeting those standards, but you had this law and uh, this agency in the way. And that's when you got into some very big debates because it was clear that the cafe was causing cars uh, to become uh, smaller and lighter at the very same time that the consumers, in response to a uh, uh, gasoline prices wanted the exact opposite. And so 
you had a, a lot of arguments being um, uh, thrown at this from various quarters. For one thing, uh, CAFE, uh, if you get into its details, actually gave a, uh, a, a, an interesting advantage to foreign car companies because they were the experts in making small cars, uh, whereas uh, the cars being produced by the U.S. industry were typically on the large side. And so one joke was that CAFE actually stood for Create Asian Full Employment. Uh, <laughs> And this, of course, was before you had this huge internationalization of uh, uh, the global industry. And now, of course, a lot of the uh, what were then just Japanese car makers are now uh, uh, very much American as well. But you can be sure that lobbyists for, for the various parts of the industry were trying to play off those advantages uh, to benefit themselves. You had other issues like union issues, which you still have because union makers were worried that uh, car companies might be shutting down plants in the U.S. in order to manufacture uh, small cars elsewhere. Which, uh, in, which, in fact, is some of what has happened, correct? Right, yeah. But the issue that the C my, my organization, CEI, got into was this, namely that uh, when you force cars to be lighter and smaller, uh, yeah, you might save, be saving gasoline, but you're giving up lives. You're making these cars less crash-worthy because it turns out that uh, in-car accidents, whether they're single vehicle or multi-vehicle, size and weight are two of the most uh, protective features around. And even though this issue has become incredibly politicized over the years to the point where, ironically, uh, when it comes to auto safety, in my view, you simply cannot trust uh, consumer reports anymore, uh, the one section of the industry that I think uh, has held true to this basic law of physics is the auto insurance industry, because obviously they've got their money riding on sure, on safety. Assess uh, uh, car safety. And so if you go to the website for their foundation, uh, highwaysafety.org, and look for their advice on buying a, a safer car, especially if you're buying a car for your kids, the very first two factors they mention uh, are size and weight. Uh, talk all you want about other technological innovations. Uh, they won't get rid of the fact that for any level of technology, CAFE forces people to give up safety in the name of field conservation. Um, so, and so we filed suit in court, and we ended up, after several tries, actually winning an appellate federal court ruling that NHTSA, National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, had illegally ignored this factor. In a sense, you had an agency whose main, middle name literally is safety running a program that actually kills people. Um, and now we thought that was the end of CAFE, but uh, as events after that, namely the whole global warming uh, alarm, uh, uh, simply overwhelmed all, all those factors. And so that really is the regime we've got in place now. And that's where they, they've gotten to is, is it's not just the mileage any longer. Uh, they're now looking at emissions as well. That, that's right. But the... Uh, and so EPA has gotten into the act, but what's really going on is you've still got these standards uh, that uh, cause cars to be smaller and lighter than they otherwise would, and you've got them at a time when gasoline is going back to uh, you know some very low prices. So this, in a sense, pits the auto industry against consumers because uh, when gasoline prices drop, it gets harder 
for the auto industry to produce the fuel-efficient cars that Congress wants or, or and Congress and its agencies want, while at the same time satisfying consumer demand. So in a sense, this uh, trade-off of, uh, of fuel economy for lives, I think, is even more severe now than it was back then. Yeah, but, you know, the statistics show that Consumers don't want these cars. They, they're, they are American consumers continually want their SUVs and their trucks. Right, but, but, but one thing you've got to recall is, you know, it's not a one-size-fits-all proposition. You know, in our view, let no, no. buy whatever vehicles they want and let the car makers satisfy them. But now you've got the irony that a number, in recent years, a number of uh, auto company leaders have actually called for higher taxes uh, on fuel. Now, this is a weird situation. Why, if you're manufacturing a product, would you want to raise the cost of the energy you need to run that product? And the answer is that the, the CAFE standards turn the auto industry away from satisfying the desires of consumers and into satisfying the desires of politicians. Yeah. Sam, we're almost out of time, and I didn't mention CEI. You want to tell us just a few seconds' worth about CEI and, and the work? Sure. Competitive Enterprise Institute is a free market uh, advocacy organization. We've been around now for more than 30 years. Our website is cei.org. And when we got into the CAFE fight, uh, you know, everyone thought, well, oh, it, it, wouldn't Ralph Nader be on your side? You're fighting for auto safety. And the answer is no, because uh, I think uh, his agenda has always been more government control. And CAFE put him in the ironic position of arguing for more politics, even though it was clearly making cars less safe. So, so much for the auto safety establishment. Well, thank you, Sam Kasman, General Counsel for the Competitive Enter Enterprise in Institute. Excuse me, Competitive Enterprise Institute. Thanks for joining us today on America's Voice for Energy. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Marita. Bye. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare. Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. You're listening to America's Webradio.com the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. 
Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. This week we're talking about the CAFE standards and specifically how they apply to Tesla, the car company that produces only electric cars and therefore has a lot of emissions credits to sell. In our previous segment with Sam Kasman, we were talking about some of the history behind the CAFE standard. And in this segment, we're going to move kind of forward from there. And I have to tell you a little bit about our next guest, whose name is Michael Volkman. And Michael wrote a piece that was very helpful for me in writing this week's column. And it's posted on a website called allpar.com. And we'll let Michael tell us about that in just a moment. But I have to tell you, and, and Michael, welcome to America's Voice for Energy. Glad that you could join us this evening. Thank you. Glad to be here. I have to tell you, it was difficult to track you down because there's no way to identify you on the website allpar.com. Uh, you're not listed there as a contributor. There's not a way to contact you. So I went to LinkedIn, and there's quite a few Michael Volkmans there. So I went to another option. I just Googled your name, and one of those websites, I don't know whether it's Spokio or Zoom or whatever it was, came up with your uh, it said something about that you're a steel engineer and that you race neon cars. And I know enough to know that neon is made by Dodge. So I went, okay, I think I have found the right person and reached out to you and you responded. So I'm glad to find you, but you were tough to find, Michael. Well, I, I didn't mean to be tough to find. <laughs> there is well, you know, your your profile on LinkedIn doesn't say anything about that you write for all Allpar.com. So to start off, tell us a little bit of what, what Allpar.com is. Uh, Allpar is a, is a website that's owned by Dave Zatz. Uh, he basically has created it, probably the largest uh, uh, online resource for really Chrysler fans. Uh, it has everything from historic stuff to uh, information and rumors uh, about future items. And it's everything that encompasses all of the Chrysler brand vehicles, starting from Maxwell all the way up to today with Alfa Romeo and, and Fiat being involved now. Yeah, you know, this is I'm on a little bit of a tangent here, but I didn't realize that Alfa Romeo was part of the Fiat Chrysler family. Yes, yes, and it's being basically relaunched as we speak. Uh, in fact, the L.A. Auto Show, I believe, will be the official relaunch for the brand in the U.S.A. Ah, well, I noticed when I was searching on allpar.com that there was a, co a commentary about a, a Fiat Alfa Romeo dealer closing in, I believe, the San Antonio area. But in my garage in the past, there has been an Alfa Romeo, so there's a little bit of a soft spot in my heart for that there. Well, you'll have your opportunity to get another one here soon. I promise you that. <laughs> now, so, Michael, so you're a... You're a um, a degreed engineer and an auto enthusiast, and I found your post on allpar.com when I was looking for um, some data that talked about why the Fiat Chrysler marriage was a good deal. And I remember reading something, perhaps in Wall Street Journal, because I'm a regular reader of the Wall Street Journal, uh, could have been Financial Times, which I also read regularly, but it was a few years back, talking about how the Fiat brand really helped 
the Chrysler brand in the CAFE standards. And honestly, Michael, your post on allpar.com was the only thing that, that came up when I Googled this topic on the, the Chrysler Fiat marriage and meeting the CAFE standards. And as an engineer, you had a mathematical explanation there of how the CAFE standards work. And frankly, it was over my head, I hate to say. But can you explain that for our listeners in a way that maybe isn't over their head? Uh, well, essentially, it's it's a well, it's a fleet average. So you're taking a harmonic mean, which is you're taking a total rate of uh, of the vehicles that are produced, and then dividing it by the reciprocal. It's really fancy math, but you end up with a with a basic average is is how it ends up. And then once you take your average, uh, there's different factors that you can add to the average and that's where the uh, that's where you're able to game the system I guess you could say and when we talk about hybrid vehicles electric vehicles e85 vehicles your flex fuel vehicles all of those vehicles allow those averages to increase by certain factor amounts and so they, uh, are they are they then like what I say they're weighted? With a certain, Absolutely. each of those, one of those vehicles has a certain measurement or a certain quality or a, a certain grade to it that is weighted into the measurement? Absolutely. So, like today, under the current rule, uh, all ethanol fleet vehicle total gets added together with an additional 1.2 miles per gallon added to the average. So, if you average out at 24.5, but you have E85 equipped vehicles in that fleet. You are you can you cannot exceed an additional of 1.2. So you take that 24.5 and you add 1.2 to it automatically just for having E85 equipped vehicles. Chrysler, for instance, has really used that to their advantage. They have a lot of vehicles that are flex fuel, so that they could get that additional credit. Just like Toyota so, uses it with their hybrids. Okay. So help me understand, because I honestly I don't I don't really understand how this whole thing measures out. Obviously, as you know, Michael, I wrote about Tesla this week, and they yes. produce all electric vehicles. So how were they then weighted into this measurement? They basically uh, receive a huge, huge stipend of credits because they don't put out any uh, greenhouse gases, and that's kind of the the that's kind of the the mixed bag of the whole thing. Corporate average fuel economy isn't really about fuel economy anymore. It's really about the tailpipe emissions. And yeah, so, and you know, I didn't, I didn't really know that until I read yeah. your your post. Your post talked about how the, which makes total sense because that's what President Obama is really all about is is the CO2 emissions. That's his big issue. So it's not so much about about the MPG, but you talked about sure. that in, in the newer version since 2009 when President Obama introduced some revised standards that really that for the, at this point the CO2 emissions were factored in. Yes, yes, uh, along with some other things, including improvements in air conditioning systems. Just it, It's all about trying to control all emissions from the vehicle uh, and making it as uh, as clean as possible, I guess you could say. I mean, they're even looking at off-cycle uh, usage, where if the car is stopped at a traffic light, it, they're measuring 
how much emissions are coming from idling, which is why you see a lot of the start-stop technology coming. Yeah, I was just going to say that exact thing. So now I understand that helps me understand why we're seeing so much stop-start. And again, I didn't know about that till I did the research for this specific column. Now, something I read, and it might have been you, it might have been somewhere, I did a lot of research to write this column, talked about that when they test these cars, they test them with, air conditioning off, and um, I don't know, was that you? Do you recall what I'm talking about? Uh, I, I've, I have written about that. Now, it's funny you said that because that's actually how the Fiat Chrysler thing occurred. For Fiat to get the additional ownership in Chrysler Corporation, they had to produce a 40-mile-per-gallon car. Well, the Dodge Dart, obviously, if you go to fueleconomy.gov, it doesn't necessarily meet that 40-mile-per-gallon number. But what's on the window sticker or Maroney sticker of a vehicle is not the number that's used for the CAF calculation. All of the numbers that you see on the window stickers on the on a new car lot are for the city. Uh, I believe it's a 10% factor downward from the raw okay. number. And it's adjusted 22% on the highway, if I remember correctly. So. Your raw data is what is used. Your unadjusted numbers is what is used for all of the calculations. And so what you see on the window sticker is not the number that's used to to even evaluate CAF or the CAFE number. Mm-hmm. So, it, so what are, what are they measuring then? Well, what they're doing is they're measuring exactly what the gas mileage is of the vehicle under a specific condition, under a specific test. A lot of it is done on a dyno, as we know with the Volkswagen deal, yeah. where Volkswagen was able to brilliantly program their vehicles to register that they're fixed in a location having a test. It's completely unethical. Brilliant engineering. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so basically, they you run your test, and then the test, knowing that the test is in a closed environment, they actually adjust the numbers downward to create the number that goes on your window sticker. But it's the unadjusted numbers that are used for the purpose of CAF and, and CAFE and, and figuring out all of the all of the numbers that are used to get the, the corporate fuel average. So help me understand because, you know, the way I found you, Michael, is on the Chrysler Fiat marriage. Help us understand why that was a good deal. <laughs> well, uh, Lisa, why it was a good deal as the CAFE standards, from that, strictly from that perspective, because obviously, based on your response, you as a uh, Dodge enthusiast, I would assume, uh, are not fond of this marriage. But, but why did it work? I, I would say, uh, I would say, I'm still, the, I'm still, I'm still waiting for the, the big, the big thing to happen. But uh, at the time. Due to everything that happened with Daimler and then being bought out and basically stripped in the process, Chrysler was really suffering and pretty much only had their large trucks and SUVs and and minivans. Uh, And their Jeeps. Yeah, really, the Jeep is what has Because the Jeep has a big following from what I've seen, from what I've studied. It's huge. And and the truth is that the Jeep, the Grand Cherokee, and the Wrangler have essentially saved Chrysler for the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. And um, so the 
the big thing, of course, Just as a side note, I personally liked the PT Cruiser when I rented a PT Cruiser. I liked well, well, the PT Cruiser. That's was, a side note. We only have a of, we only have a minute and a half left, so don't go too okay. far onto the PT Cruiser because I realize I distracted you. Sorry about that. It's a great example, though, of what they're changing for 2017 and why and how they're handling things. Because in 2017 and beyond, uh, the PT Cruiser would no longer be called a light truck when it comes to fuel economy. Where the PT Cruiser before that, in the 2000s, was considered a light truck, which actually helped the light truck side of the cafe numbers. Okay. I understand that. An interesting way to look at it. Um, but yes, so what's the, what would be the PT Cruiser? Now, they don't even make it anymore, do they? No, no, they don't make the PT Cruiser anymore. But, the, but uh, so essentially on the, new, on the new side of things, there's going to be specific, uh, specific targets for compact car, mid-size car, full-size car, small SUV, mid-size crossover, minivan, and then the pickup truck itself. Mm-hmm. And so as you go through this, what you'll find is that 54-and-a-half number that everybody keeps talking about, that's the big right. number, because of the way they're weighting everything based on the footprint of the car, the physical footprint, the actual total average is probably going to work out for a fleet to be around 36 miles per gallon based on your typical sales of your three major domestic brands. Okay, Michael, i got to interrupt you for a sec because I'm out of time. Do you have time to stay with me for another 13 minutes, another segment? I can if you want me to. <laughs> okay, yeah, because, all right, so we're going to just take a pause here real quick, and we'll be okay. right back with Michael Volkman on America's Voice Hopefully. for Energy. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government as well as those involved in legal cases have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. This is Michael Gano with Insight to Israel. Every day, the Israeli Defense Force finds itself on the front line of the war with the militant arm of Islam. Surrounded by enemies from within and without, they fight for the only Jewish state. Military service is mandatory, ladies serving two years and men serving three right out of high school. While young people in other democracies are busy traveling or attending university, Israeli men and women gear up for basic training. In a world of heads of state, politicians, ambassadors, diplomats, and a leftist media, many times our voice at the grassroots level is drowned out. So we started an ongoing project called Hershey's for Heroes. Patriot conservatives from all over the U.S. are sending Hershey's chocolate bars with a note of thanks for defending Israel. Won't you join us by sending a sweet message to the IDF? For information, please see my Facebook page at Michael Gano. Thank you, God bless Patriot Conservatives, and God bless Israel in her struggle for sovereignty and security. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. We're in segment three for today's show, where we're talking about cafe standards, and my particular emphasis in my column was on the, the Tesla and what the 
cafe credits are that electronic vehicles get or electric vehicles get. We're talking with Michael Voltman, who is a, a degreed engineer, an auto enthusiast, and a columnist for allpar.com, which specializes, and Michael, you can correct this for me, but it's really a website for, for Chrysler product enthusiasts. Is that correct? Correct. That that is correct. That is okay. Correct. So we were you were telling us about the um, cafe standards, and before we had to take a break, and I appreciate you being able to stay with us. I'm just amazed how quickly the time has flown in discussing <laughs> this. So um, go ahead and continue where we left off. Well, I think we left off with the uh, with the fuel economy targets for. 2017 through 2025. Yes, and you were explaining how that this 54.5 number that we see in the media is not reality. No, no, it's not. Because as we go through, and your your initial 2017 numbers are going to raise substantially. So for your because typical, wait a minute, back up for me. So phase one is supposed to be completed by 2016, and where are we in general on that? Uh, I would say... Have most of the car manufacturers achieved that? I would say yes. I, I okay. honestly do believe most of the car manufacturers will be able to hit most of these targets, but Tesla will still be able to keep their profit center of selling credits for quite some time uh, uh -huh. because of uh, you're going to still have these... Some, not as many because uh, of the numbers, some of the high-performance vehicles that are still going to require the purchase of credits to, to make uh, the numbers as, as needed. Um, but, for instance, if you look at the truck market, the, the 2012 mile-per-gallon goal was 22.3. 2017 is 25.1. 2021 is 25.3. And then the 2025 So they have kind of incremental increases. Correct. So by 2025, okay. that's when the large truck is supposed to have a corporate economy average for the large truck side of 30 miles per gallon. It's 30.2. So it's a it's actually a slow rollout. So the 54 number that everybody keeps saying, it's going to be a long time before we get there. But then because everything is broken down by by grouping of car, by vehicle type, and by size, essentially by the footprint of the vehicle on the ground, uh, it's going to really average out closer to 36 miles per gallon based on product. The uh, on product the fleet average. Yes. yes. Okay. okay. That, that 54 number just isn't realistic because of the way it's designed that they're allowing the larger vehicles to, to have lower targets. And at this point, you, you see it around you all the time, especially in Texas, say the high sales of large pickup trucks. Yes. People are still going to buy pickup trucks, especially with the oil prices the way they are now. Yes. Buy yeah, that, that's definitely killed the uh, the market for the small car. Oh, yes, definitely, definitely. And, uh, you know, you have Tesla, which is truly a specialty automaker. They're not a mainstream electric brand, in my opinion. Uh, although they're extremely popular and they're doing a great job of, of marketing the vehicles and, and what they are, uh, to me, it's not a mainstream vehicle yet. Until no. they have a vehicle that's in the thirty to forty thousand dollar range, it, they're just not a mainstream car, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Now, they will be able to continue to sell credits that they're receiving because they have 
zero tailpipe emissions. They will be able to continue selling credits through uh, 20, into the 2025 timeframe of things. Now, the interesting thing is if they are holding credits or any brand, for instance, like Toyota has lots of extra credits because of the Prius uh, right. model vehicles, any credits that they've held from 2012 to 2016, they'll be able to sell those credits through 2021. So there's a five-year gap where any held credits... So these credits, credits have a lifetime of five years? Yes, they do. That's right. So they'll be able to continue to sell them on this gray market uh, to the other manufacturers. And so, okay, so wait a minute. Why do you call it a gray market? I'm not grilling you. I'm not questioning you. I'm just, I've not heard that term, so I'm curious. I call it a gray market because it's completely and totally you, – you set this rule and regulation. You say you need to meet this, right, or we're going mm -hmm. to fine you. But then mm -hmm. at the same time, you've actually created a market on the back end of it to buy and trade, essentially, these credits. So you're not really forcing the manufacturers to meet the, the regulations if you're allowing them to purchase the credits yeah. to make up for it. <laughs> it's yeah. kind of kind of a backwards way of looking at it. And then realistically when you when you're only talking about in the current penalty phase of it, today a fifty five dollar per vehicle charge for every one mile per gallon under I mean that that equates to under three hundred dollars a vehicle that could be washed into a MSRP without people even noticing it. Sure, yeah, three hundred dollars so, is nothing in the price of a car. Yeah, it's it's an interesting aspect of things, and and I'm I I I see a lot of changes coming because the the big push is for higher efficiency, higher efficiency, and I think we're going to see a lot of our big V8 muscle cars start to fade away here in the next five to so 10 years. Which, personally, I think is very sad. Yeah, oh, I agree with you. I own Because uh, I, I think the consumer <laughs> should be able to buy what they want to buy. And I agree with you. I agree with you 100%. And this is actually a discussion we've had on Allpar, and, and I, I certainly don't agree with it, but it is the reality of the situation. We're going to see more V6 turbocharged vehicles. I mean, Ford is all in with the EcoBoost. Absolutely, 100% all in. They're they're making more EcoBoost pickup trucks with than they are the the 5.0 liter V8 trucks right now. Okay, it's, sorry, I don't know what an EcoBoost is. That's their V6 turbocharged engine. That is essentially. Okay, and they're putting that in their the big trucks. Yes, in the in okay. the full size trucks, and they've. Even their next big Ford GT supercar is based on that V6 turbocharged engine instead of a V8 engine. Uh, their their mindset is we're going to replace the V8 with this engine, and that's the direction we're going. But, and they're but doing the a great government job mandates basically require that. To a certain extent, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, they don't say what your technology has to be. But they no. really are trying to get rid of um, the the American muscle cars. It, it, essentially, yes. Um, the the American muscle car that you and I know very well. I don't think performance cars are going to go away. They're just going to change quite considerably. Can we talk at all about the Ferrari? I know that's not probably your thing, but I well, wrote about it in writing my column. I until I did the research for writing my column this week. I was unaware that 
Ferrari was part of the Fiat family. Yes, yes, it is. It, but now it's being separated, which is actually right. good for, for Ferrari because they will probably fall under the 10,000 total production clause. That's Yeah, and I discovered standard. that in my research, yeah. So it's actually better for them to be outside of Chrysler. And the best part was uh, the, the FCA group, Fiat Chrysler, actually, you know, they're making many billions of dollars off of the sale of Ferrari, right. yet they're still technically controlling Fiat, uh, Ferrari completely, just like they were yesterday. They will be tomorrow. But now they've got this huge cash cow to be able to pay off debt. And, of course, Alfa Romeo is going to come from that and some other things. Um, but, yeah, it's it's definitely uh, – they've by selling uh, – by selling control of Ferrari, they've given the opportunity to to be able to control that side of it for CAF and regulation, and, and they'll probably do just fine. Now, Porsche, on the other hand, has been gaming to have that 10,000 limit raised to 60,000 so that it, they can fall uh -huh. underneath it, but I don't Yeah, can you stop for our listeners? Because I, I read about that, so I know what you're talking about, but probably okay. most people don't know what you're talking about with this 10,000 car limit. Right, uh, it's it's total production. If you if your manufacturer, a small manufacturer, and you produce under ten thousand vehicles, and I believe it is worldwide, you qualify to a giant loophole essentially in the rules that says you don't have to meet this regulatory mile per gallon for your fleet. because you're a specialty vehicle. Exactly, exactly, and it's great for very small high end manufacturers. But then you've got your Porsche group that wants to have that rule changed to fit them. Mm -hmm. Well, Porsche and VW have obviously had some issues with trying to work with the regulations. So yes, we we can see where that's going. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So. Now, I mean, of course, side note, it's my contention that Volkswagen did what they did because the regulations – it's virtually impossible with current technology to produce a car that meets with the regulations and that the consumer wants to buy. I would say to a certain degree, you're probably right. You know, I'm not, I'm not, giving, I'm not giving Volkswagen a pass on this, no, but my no, viewpoint is, is that the regulations are at the point where, where they're virtually impossible to meet. I mean, yes, well, we know how to produce a car that can get 54 miles per gallon. We've seen it with a smart car. But, you know, who wants that car? <laughs> well, and especially at that time, because at that time they really, the, when the, the, the current rules for 2011 through 2016 came out, it was, it was quite a substantial jump. And for Volkswagen to be able to meet their program requirements for performance of vehicle and and still hit their gas mileage targets without spending a lot of money in development. That's probably the direction they went because of that. Of course, that's yeah. speculation on my part, but clearly somebody was very brilliant in programming those vehicles to, to be able to meet those specifications under certain, certain conditions, obviously. Of course, yeah. today... Your your newest Volkswagens that with their newest engines they have you know your your diesel exhaust fluid and some and your other means that the other companies have been using for several years. Uh, so I I think in my opinion they were trying to buy time 
to get those technologies and figure it out. And I mm-hmm. think it just got it got away from them is what it did. Hmm. Well, I know that they've got a very strong following. Michael, we've yeah. got just about a little more than 30 seconds left. Is there anything you know that you want to be sure that we cover? Um, I just uh, any questions you have. I'm. Well, I'm give wondering. us a you tell us <laughs> give us a, a closing pitch on allpar.com. Well, uh, please visit allpar.com if you're interested in, in Chrysler history and future product from Chrysler. Uh, it's a great website with lots of technical information. Uh, it's uh, They've done a good job of having lots of former Chrysler engineers and even current Chrysler engineers and, and other people in the field uh, contribute to the website. So there's it's definitely a higher-level website in terms of, of information and knowledge. Well, great. Michael, I appreciate you joining me on America's Voice for Energy today. I encourage our listeners to check out allpar.com and particularly Michael's column on CAFE standards where you've got the engineering technical formulations there of how this all works out. But uh, I appreciate you giving us your time today. Thank you, Michael. Thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. And we'll be right back on America's Voice for Energy. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. The United States Justice Foundation, since 1979, has been dedicated to instructing, informing, and educating the public on legal issues confronting America. That means you and me. When necessary, this nonprofit organization has had to litigate to present the constitutional view. Since 1980, USJF has submitted testimony to the U.S. Senate on all but one U.S. Supreme Court nominee. Learn more about USJF by visiting their website at www.usjf.net. Support this nonprofit as it defends our rights, our liberty, and our Constitution. You're listening to America's Webradio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome to our closing segment of America's Voice for Energy. I hope you've enjoyed today's show as much as I have, and I'm sure you're going to be equally interested in our closing segment with Danny Battaglia, who is the Senior Manager of Industry Insights with True Car. And we're going to talk about electric cars, um, their popularity, and particularly uh, their resale value, as I found it fascinating as I prepared my research for this week's column, I was fascinated at uh, the difficulty that electric cars are facing in the marketplace with, with resale. So, Danny, thanks for joining me today, and I look forward to your insights on this topic. Yeah, thank you. 
So what's the real story with this? Our, our, I, you know, my research shows that upfront consumers are resistant to electric cars, and I think that the resale value of electric cars really illustrates that. Yeah, I think it starts with uh, with sales really down uh, almost nine percent in the last year. Meanwhile, the industry uh, overall is up four and a half percent. So it's right there in the data that the demand is starting to to slow down. Um, I feel like the initial demand has been satisfied, and now incentives are, are the way to kind of get the nets a little bit wider to to other people who might have not been as interested in electric vehicles. Um, you know, when you start having $100 payments for a month of, of using a vehicle, um, that can be enticing to people who normally wouldn't have wanted an EV, you know, due to the infrastructure or the range anxiety or so forth. Are payments as low as $100 a month? Um, I, I've seen some, you know, Fiat 500E, um, some other deals, but recently with, uh, you know, there's a, a new loyalty incentive with Volkswagen because of the diesel issue. Sure. And a friend of mine said zero down 120 months with that incentive uh, to have a, an e-golf. So, for uh, I mean, I've driven the e-golf. It's a very fun car to drive, um, you know, almost 100 miles of range or more. Um, for $120 a month, that, that's, you know, pretty enticing. Yeah, I, I hadn't seen them in my research. I hadn't seen them that low and, in fact, didn't even know that Volkswagen had an electric. I didn't come up in any of the research that I did for my column this week. Yeah, and that was it's specific to someone who owns a diesel now. It's just a, a friend of mine has a, a sport wagon with a diesel motor, and um, over the last month or so, uh, Volkswagen has given a $2,000 additional loyalty. Um, and, you know, my, my buddy is definitely, uh, you know, taking that incentive seriously. And, you know, his calculation is 120. I don't think that's necessarily for everyone, but someone with a diesel car now that, um, you know, accepts that extra incentive, um, the payments can be a lot lower than, than what are advertised. Yeah, so what I saw was like lease rates in the $199 a month range, which does make it sound attractive. I mean, I was even, you know, when I heard that, it was kind of like, well, maybe that's not a bad thing to check out. But uh, the research that, that I did and, and, and uh, how I connected up with you shows that once these leases are over, they, they're able to make the leases attractive enough that someone will go, okay, I'll give this a try. But they don't seem to be wanting to keep these cars once the lease is over. Yeah, with all the incentives from federal and um, you know local and even municipal governments um, only being on the new side, it's it's hard to you know want to buy a two or three year old vehicle um, that doesn't have those same incentives. So when when you're uh, you know looking for a used car and and, and EVs, you know, it could be a little worrisome if um, you know you think the battery might need to be replaced and that's going to be kind of expensive. So the new side is definitely more attractive when you have those large rebates. But as you pointed out, even with those large rebates, uh, the sales on the new car side are are not increasing as, I guess, industry analysts originally thought. Yeah, I mean, with gas prices um, coming down this year and expected to, to go down even further this year, um, and along with a lot of internal combustion engines getting more efficient, um, you know, since the gas price spike, you know, early, um, several years ago, uh, yes. it's just, it becomes a lot more uh, of an economic thing. You know, do you really need to pay the extra amount to, to buy an electric vehicle? Might as well lease it if it's going to be, you know, incentivized and stack all those credits on top of it. 
um, you know, you're, re you're really not paying that much for your basic transportation if you're not dri driving more than, you know, 100 miles a day. Yeah. So what do you guys see at True Car? You analyze all the car new and used car sales. Am I correct on that? Yeah. Where do you see that it's it's that it's really price of gasoline driven, or I mean, obviously, when the price of gasoline is high, people look more toward electric cars. Or do you think it's that they're resistant uh, to these electric cars? Um, I think it could be a combination of both. I mean, the the gas prices being low um, makes the EV not make as much sense. But also, the people that want EVs already have them, and, you know, it, it takes, uh, you know, a lot of time to build up awareness. Um, I like driving EVs. They're really fun. They're, they're torquey. They're, they're um, great for the city. Um, but I, you know, at a three or $400 price point, I wouldn't be willing to buy one because I, I like to travel outside of the city. Um, it, would, it would be a second car for me. But when you start seeing those prices under $200, you know, it, it kind of, uh, could change your mind a bit. So having a second car for a couple hundred dollars uh, a month, you know, you end up saving, you know, gas money, and it almost, in, in some cases, you can offset that cost with just the gas savings. Yeah, and I, you know, I'm with you. I see them uh, as something that's viable. I've never driven one. I hate to say, I, I always think that considering what I do, that uh, the industry should reach out to me and say, here, we want you to drive one of these. But that hasn't happened. I've never driven one. But I see the logic in an electric car for city driving, where you, you don't go very far and where you have a lot of vehicles on the highways at one time and therefore um, displacing the emissions, as I prefer to think of it, rather than a zero emission of vehicle, the emissions are displaced from the tailpipe to the power plant, uh, makes sense when you've got a lot of cars in a, in a compact space. Right. And if, and if you don't have that volume, it's not going to have as much of an impact, obviously, if you um, are only mixing in a few EVs with a lot of internal combustion. Uh, but these manufacturers are spending a lot of money, um, you know, to save CO2. So if, if you were to look at a vehicle like uh, Cadillac ELR, I mean, their incentives are close to $50,000. Uh, I think that's more of a pricing issue for them. But when you compare it to a comparable vehicle like the ATS, um, they're, they're spending almost $2,000 for, you know, one ton of CO2 offset. Yeah, and that's, for me personally, that's what, that's what I find frustrating in that these government regulations really are distorting the market and that companies like Tesla then have uh, these emission credits that they're able to, to sell, and, and they're making a lot of money selling emissions credits. Yeah, I think a lot of the profits um, over the past years have come from those credits. I'm not sure how much longer, you know, that will last, but it's definitely, um, you know, specific to Tesla. They've been able to really take advantage and, and uh, magnify those credits. Yeah, and that was one of the key points of the column that I wrote uh, this week. You mentioned, um, Danny, that the early, the people who really want electric vehicles, which is obviously a really small percentage of the population, already has them. Who do you think those people are? Are they people that love new technology and just like new technology for the sake of it? Are they people that are genuinely worried about CO2 emissions? Are they looking at them for economic reasons? What do you see? 
Yeah, I think it's a combination of all of that. Um, I mean, I live in Los Angeles, and people like to be seen and drive their Model S's around. Um, I know people that have been on the waiting list for that Model X for three or four years without even knowing what the specs are going to be on it. So it's definitely a lot of hype. I'm sure there are some people that are trying to save the world. Um, you know, if you had a home that has a solar panel, it makes a lot more sense. Um, so I think it's a combination of all those things. Where do you see the future of electric cars going? I mean, we've seen the sales decline in recent history. Do you think that trend is going to continue? Um, I, don't, I think electrification is going to continue, um, you know, definitely in, in the hybrid and, you know, hydrogen. Um, you look at the, some of the supercars today, we have the Porsche 918 Spider, that's a hybrid. Uh, the LaFerrari is a hybrid. Um, you know, even in motorsports, they're using hybrids, hybrid in uh, Formula One. So I don't think it's going, going away. Um, I think if the range increases, it becomes um, less of an issue. Uh, a lot of people, I think, are turned off by the range anxiety and the time it takes to charge back up. So if it's, Yeah, those are big issues. Yeah, if it charges a lot quicker, if we have an infrastructure. I mean, just recently there was a, a new record for driving across the U.S. Um, using the, the Tesla superchargers. So now, you know, people can get across the U.S. I'm sure it's not very convenient. They're probably, you know, waiting 30 minutes um, every time they have to fill up. Um, but, you know, with battery swapping or if they can charge faster and the infrastructure is built up, it will make a lot more sense. The problem is there isn't that infrastructure yet. Uh, people are charging at home. Some people are going to, you know, um, some big parking lots that have, have charging stations. Um, but it's just the infrastructure is not there to really support the amount of, of EVs um, that it would take to make a huge impact. Yeah, I remember a story a year or two ago um, that Costco apparently, I think it was in Seattle, had put in charging stations and other places that nobody was using them, and so they removed them. Hmm. Yeah, I haven't heard that. I've definitely um, anecdotally heard about, you know, places like down in Cyprus, Mitsubishi has their, their um, strong charger at their headquarters, and people would line up at the end of the day and, you know, get their, their super or their fast charge rather than, than plugging it at home. Um, so I think it's, just, it's different depending on uh, the locale. Yeah. Well, like I said, it certainly makes a lot of sense in cities, but isn't it true that those fast charges are much harder on the batteries? Yeah, I'm not that familiar with exactly how the degradation works in the battery, um, but I have heard that. Yeah, I, I read it somewhere, something I wrote on it a while ago um, on, on the electric cars. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see where the industry goes with this, because like I said, there's certain places, um, in my opinion, primarily big cities, where an electric car can really make a lot of sense. But considering the amount of money that has been spent trying to, trying to push these things, and obviously the Tesla has a little more mystique about it than, say, a Nissan Leaf does, but uh, it seems like the public has been overall resistant uh, to these and has really only, with the exception of a small percentage of the population, uh, buying them because of the price point and all the incentives, as you pointed out. Exactly. And if you look at the used values after two and three years, um, especially in the last year, they've, they've really dropped. Um, you know, people are afraid to buy a, a used vehicle where the technology is already two and three years old and um, there's a chance that uh, the battery is no longer under warranty and they'd have to, to replace it. So there's not much used demand for all these Leafs that are coming back. Um, you know, there's a high lease percentage on Volts and Leafs, and now they're all coming back to the used market, 
and uh, no one no one is there um, to buy them. Yeah, it's interesting to see where it's going to go. We're about out of time, Danny. Thanks for joining us today. We've been talking with Danny Battaglia, who is the senior industry or senior manager of industry insights for TrueCar.com. We appreciate your time, Danny. Thanks so much. Thanks, Marita. Thanks, and please tune in next week for the next episode of America's Voice for Energy on AmericasWebRadio.com. Thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.